Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. That hymn reminds us of several things connected to why we come together, times like this for worship. And I have to say that it is just good to be here with you each week again. Um, It was a good, refreshing time to get away and to worship some other places, but there's something about being back with people that you know and love than the common things we share together as we uh, then bring them to the Lord together. You might have heard uh, about a town uh, where the Kitty Cat Lounge ended up being built right across the street from the church. And the church members were really bothered about this, having a strip club across the street from the church. And so they began to pray regularly uh, um, that God would somehow close it down. One night there was a thunderstorm, and lightning struck the Kitty Cat Lounge, and it burnt to the ground. The congregation was rather happy about this until... Um, they found that the owner of the kitty cat sued the church. The case went to court, and his lawyer presented evidence that the church had been praying for the club to be destroyed. The church pleaded not guilty, claiming they didn't do anything to the club. And the judge said, you know, this is the strangest case I have ever dealt with. Here you have an atheist who believes in the power of prayer and a Christian congregation that doesn't. (laughs) Well, whatever other reasons we have for being here today, in the text we look at here in in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy a primary reason that believers gather for corporate worship is to pray, to communicate personally and also corporately with our Heavenly Father and so I invite you to look with me in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. We're, we're going through a series in this book, and on and, uh, and the back um, there may be some more copies of this. This is a scripture journal. It has the text on one side and, and a place to take notes on the other. You are welcome to pick them up and make use of them if that's helpful for you. But would you stand in reverence to God's word as we read beginning with chapter 2, verse 1. 1st <coughs> of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of our God and Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire 
but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Lord God, we thank you for this, your word, and we pray that as we meditate on it, your Holy Spirit would enlighten us, that we might understand what it says and how it applies in our situations these days. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You might have noticed toward the end of the text today some verses that caught your attention. Verses that many preachers, including this one, would probably rather not tackle in a sermon. But we will address them today. They are not, however, the main focus of this chapter. And so let me set the context for what is here. Last week you heard from chapter 1 how the Apostle Paul was given a charge from the Lord Jesus, which he was also then passing on to Timothy. And that charge was to proclaim the truth of God's word the law and the gospel. And he spelled out then right and wrong ways to do so. And he urged Timothy then to deal with those at Ephesus who were teaching unsound doctrine. Now as we look at chapter 2, Paul urges Timothy to make public worship gatherings priority and he spells out how such gatherings ought to be conducted. And so first of all then, when you gather for corporate worship, pray. That is what we are all to be here for, to pray. Well, what does prayer involve? In its most basic definition from the Catechism, prayer is simply talking to God silently or out loud from my heart. And when we come together for worship, then we encourage each other in our individual relationships with God to talk to Him personally. And also then we do that together. And, and it's not then just merely saying words into the air. But it is believing in our hearts that God himself is listening um, to our praises and to our concerns. And so I encourage you to participate then, personally, in those prayers that we say here to, today and each week as you come together. Um, let them be from your lips and, and from your heart. In a normal Sunday morning service here, you're invited to address God out loud in prayer at least twice. In the confession of sin early on in the service and then also in praying the Lord's Prayer toward the end. You're also encouraged to agree in your hearts in prayer with the one who is leading in intercessory prayers. And also notice that often some of the hymns and choruses we sing together are prayers as well. Let them be from your lips and from your heart as well. Paul mentions here to Timothy four words related to prayer. Each of them have slightly different connotations, so let me just briefly mention them here. The word supplications, some translations use the word entreaties, um, that comes from a word meaning something very interesting, meaning to chance upon the opportunity to have an audience with the king and, and present a request to him. And that's really what prayer is, isn't it? The good fortune that we have of being allowed audience with the King of Kings and the Lord of the universe and make personal requests of him. 
The next word here, prayers, is a more general word, um, but really has connotations concerning our attitude as we pray. An attitude of reverent address, considering who we're talking to. And then intercessions. Well, to intercede is to, is to draw near and converse familiarly uh, and do so for somebody else. Uh, stepping in then alongside someone else, and entering into their situation and intervening then in their affairs for their benefit. Uh, I like uh, how uh, Hallisby makes it somewhat simple in definitions. Uh, he says simply this, to pray is to tell Jesus what we lack and intercession is to tell Jesus what we see others lack. It's as simple as that. Seeing real needs of people around us um, through, and throughout the world. And then going to God with your concern for them and pleading with him on their behalf. And we do that together when we gather for corporate worship. It also has this word thanksgivings. And that really is to then be the natural response of our heart as we see God answer our prayers. I need to tell you. One of the major takeaways for me from my time away on sabbatical break was a fresh recognition of the essential priority of prayer. And I have found that in my personal life, prayer too easily gets crowded out. And with God's, God's hope, I hope to grow in this area. Particularly, I guess, I have made a fresh commitment to pray for you, you who are my flock. We, we got a new pictorial directory. Pick that up uh, after our service today if you're, part, or if you're in there. And, and you know, I, I recognize that can be a useful tool for me. And, and so I have photocopied the back pages there with the lists. And, and I plan to pray each day for a few um, and, and work my way through the list over a few days. Maybe you'd like to do the same. I also want to invite you, as your pastor, I want to invite you um, to share your personal prayer requests with me. And I would be glad to keep them in confidence if that's what you wish. And so those pew cards have a spot where you could do that and make that request. Or hand me a slip of paper. Um, if you tell it to me, I may forget. But I would like to pray for you. Paul encourages Timothy here, and us as well, to make prayer a priority as we come together. Well, for whom or for what should we pray? Our concern should not just be for ourselves or even for just our own locality, but for the whole world. And so in prayer, we enter into God's concerns. And you know, it's based on, on verses like this here, uh, that as a part of our service each week, we pray for our own parishioners in need and, and for local ministries we support and, and also um, for ministries elsewhere, even across the globe. And so... Though intercessory prayer of the service leader can sometimes maybe seem long, we, we, we might not know everybody that they're praying for, um, yet we are encouraged through prayer to expand our concerns beyond our tendency that we have to be very self-centered in our focus. In corporate prayer, then, we agree with each other on some things together, and we bring them together to the throne of God. I love the second verse of this hymn, Blessed be the tie that binds. It goes like this. Before our Father's throne, we pour our ardent prayers. Our fears, our hopes, our aims are one. Our comforts and our cares. And so corporate prayer brings us together, 
brings us together around God's priorities, and we are to pray for all people because we recognize that no one is outside of God's concerns and no one is beyond his reach. But we're especially encouraged in, this, in these verses here to pray for all those who are in high places, for kings and all who are in high positions, verse 2 tells us. And in our country, then, that would especially mean pray for your government leaders. And one of the reasons to pray for them is mentioned here, that we might lead peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and dignity. We would all prefer that our lives be peaceful. And you see, that is more likely to be so when we have good government leaders who really care about the people that they govern, who, who then see themselves as public servants and, and aren't in it for some radical political agenda or for their own selfish gain. And, and so, You've already been encouraged to do so. I, I encourage you to commit to pray for and, and then vote in the elections that will take place here in the next month as those things shape um, the direction our state and nation goes in the years ahead. And I believe that it is right for us to pray for God to even humble the hearts of those that are in leadership and even to pray that God would remove some from office if they have evil agendas. What else should we pray for when we come together? As we look on here, we see, this is clear, we should pray for the salvation of all through the knowledge of the truth. Verse 4 makes it quite clear God's desire is that all men would be saved, all mankind would be saved, that, that none would have to face the eternal damnation that they and their sins have deserved. And God has provided a way that all can be saved. And that is by coming to the knowledge of the truth. The truth about their own sinfulness and lostness, and the truth that there is a Savior for them that they can receive as a gift, a forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ. And in order for people to be saved, then they need to grasp those basic truths. And he mentions here especially this, that there is only one God. There's one God who is the creator and sustainer of the universe. A God who is all-powerful and all-knowing and everywhere present, and he is holy and perfect. And he has a right, then, to pour out his wrath and judgment on mankind who have rebelled against him as their creator. But he also loves all mankind, and he has sent a Savior in Jesus Christ. And that's the second thing it points out there, then, this truth that there is one mediator and only one between sinful man and the holy God, and that is the one who gave himself as a ransom. Jesus, in his death on the cross, he, the God-man, died in our place. And in that death on the cross, then the ransom was paid, and our just punishment was borne by him. Paul has been charged with passing on those essential truths, and so have we. And God's desire is that all would hear that message, and that if some end up then still being excluded from salvation that he offers, it's because they, in their stubbornness, have rejected the offer. Well, besides praying for the salvation of all mankind, Paul goes on to address another area that it's appropriate to pray for here, and that is for order and harmony in the congregation. Satan, the enemy of our souls, would like nothing better than to, to keep that the essential message uh, off on the side, rather than it being spread. And so he will do all that he can to distract Christians from their call to spread the gospel. And one of the ways that he accomplishes that is by bringing disharmony in a congregation. And Paul addresses this here with Timothy, urging that the spiritual battle be won 
with prayer. And so he first addresses men of the congregation about that. And before we go on here to look in some of these verses here, I need to just pause and say that the verses we're looking at next, there is significant disagreement among those who claim to be a part of the Christian church. Um, and, and we need to understand that. Um, and so one, as we walk through this, I'm going to just show you some different angles that people take on that. One way that people deal with these verses is to just totally ignore them and pretend they aren't even in the Bible. Along with this, some scholars would choose to discredit verses like this in Scripture that they disagree with and say, well, the Apostle Paul couldn't have written that. Somebody else must have added it later. Well, if you start that, it is a very slippery slope. Uh, and it leaves all of Scripture then being subject to our judgment instead of the other way around, which is Holy Scripture should be judging us. Well, we're not going to go that direction. And so uh, another way that many chose to, or choose to respond to these verses is to say, well, we need to look at those verses in the cultural context to which they are written. And our culture today is very different from the first century in Asia Minor. And you know, they are not wrong. But that does not give us freedom to throw out all of what is said here concerning men and women as no longer than applying to our day. And part of the reason we must say that is that that's what Paul says here. And I'm going to explain that in a bit. But let me just quote John Stott here as he sums up our concern here. He says this, The danger of declaring any passage of Scripture to have only local and not universal and only transient and not perpetual validity is that it opens the door to wholesale rejection of apostolic teaching since virtually the whole New Testament was addressed to specific situations. Well, let's go on here then, verse 8. And there we see Paul says that men should pray and not quarrel. I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Three hindrances to prayer are alluded to there. Unholy hands, anger, and quarreling. And you see, if there is unconfessed sin in our life, it, it hinders our relationship with God and it keeps us from praying to Him. If there's anger towards someone, we will hesitate to pray for them or with them. And if there is quarreling going on in the church, it usually means that two parties are not going together to talk to the Lord about the situation, but instead are talking probably to other people about it behind their backs. And so Paul urges here, that men should live in daily repentance and faith and that they would come together with clear consciences praying together to the Lord. Well, now, is that to be understood as culturally only and no longer to apply to us today? No, that, that has universal application in the Christian church for all times. Well, does that then mean that we are always to lift our hands when we pray? It, it seems to me bodily posture when one prays varies with culture. And in the rest of Scripture, we see examples of standing and kneeling and sitting and clapping our hands and, and raising arms in prayer. All of them are appropriate responses as we are talking to the Lord or worshiping Him. But you know, unless you're quite a bit more coordinated than I am, it's rather impossible to do them all at once. 
Well, let's look on in the verses in which Paul addresses two issues here related to women. How they adorn themselves and also their roles in relation to men in the setting of corporate worship. And first of all, let me make it clear that corporate worship is the setting to which Paul addresses these issues. And this is not some general statement of male superiority and female inferiority. It's not stating that women should never be bosses in the workplace or ever hold government office. It's not saying that men are smarter than women, though it might be hinting that women are generally better looking. <laughs> Verses 9 and 10 remind us here that women should adorn themselves respectably and with good works. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold and pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness and good works. Two issues stick out to me here, both relating to outward appearance. One is the issue of modesty in dress, and the other is of the cost of what is worn. The issue of modesty in dress. Let me just start by saying this. God has created women as a most beautiful example of his creation. And it is possible for women to be a distraction during worship services simply by how they dress. Particularly if they dress immodestly, showing too much skin. And though just what modesty looks like may change with various cultures, the fact that, that men's eyes are drawn to look and to lust has not changed. And yes, men are to be responsible for their own thought lives. But they were to be that in Paul's day too, and still he addressed this issue. The issue of, of cost of adornment. Paul mentions some specific items here. Braided hair, gold, pearls, and costly attire. It, it seems that in, in that day, and in their culture, both in the Jewish and in the Gentile, cultures, uh, women were noted for very elaborate hairstyles, and, and some of those hairstyles were associated with prostitutes. Pearls were considered to be very valuable, even more valuable than gold, and, and some women would end up wearing garments and outfits that were worth 7,000 days wages. Besides that being very poor stewardship for Christian women, period, Gatherings for worship were not the place to flaunt one's wealth. And Paul encourages women to instead focus on adorning themselves with good works. And again, it seems then here that there is universal application to be drawn here. Those styles of adornment may change. Over-focusing on outward adornment distracts both men and women from the focus that we're to have as we come together for worship. There's one more issue here in verses 11 to 15 to address. And what I have to say will not cover every in and out relating to this issue at all. But it is summed up with this statement where it tells us that women are to learn with submissiveness, not teaching or exercising authority over men. Now, let me ask, were there likely issues going on in the congregation at Ephesus that made this important for Paul to address? Very likely there was. Can we then dismiss it all as no longer applicable to today? No. Why do I say that? Well, it's because Paul's explanation states two reasons for his statements that go beyond culture and have universal application. He says that it's based on creation and based on the fall. Verse 11. 
Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over men. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And then he says this, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now what is Paul saying? Is one of the reasons for a woman to learn with submissiveness and not teach or exercise authority over man? He's going back to the order of creation. And that was that Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Eve was created out of Adam and for him. And so from creation, God established then what Ephesians 5 talks about here as, as a male headship in the marriage relationship. Now, that does not mean in any way better than. It's only describing different roles. And in the marriage relationship, the husband's role is that of loving headship, like Christ lovingly um, leads in the church. And the wife's role is that of submission to the head, like the church submits to Christ. That's what Ephesians 5 tells us. John Stott describes that in this way. He says, this is a caring, not crushing headship. It is a headship of self-sacrifice, not self-assertion. Of love, not pride. Intended to be liberating, not enslaving. Well, the second reason that Paul gives here for a woman to learn with submissiveness and not teach or exercise authority over a man it is based on the fall into sin. Verse 14, and, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. You see, Eve was the first to disobey God, being deceived by the serpent. And it could be said that she took the lead and she usurped Adam's authority and reversed their roles. Now that does not in any way excuse Adam from then following his wife's example of disobedience. It just describes the order. We don't have to fully understand everything concerning this, but we do need to recognize something. That is that in the home and in mixed gatherings for public worship, God has established male and female roles that, that trace back to creation and the fall. And he's done so for the purpose of order. And it's based on this passage of scripture and on some others. That within our denominational body, the Association of Free Lutheran Congregations, we don't ordain women to the role of pastor, and we don't have them preach in congregational gatherings. And by the way, concerning that, if you're wanting to understand more where we're coming from as a denomination on that, there are copies of a brochure that are on the back table there that the AFLC has put out, um, titled, A Biblical Response to the Question of Ordination of Women. I do want to go on to say something, though, and that is that there are many, many roles in a congregation where women are not restricted from serving and, and are greatly encouraged to do so, including then instructing children and also other women. And it also seems quite possible for women to lead things sometimes in mixed company without exercising authority. For instance, I think maybe a distinction can be drawn between facilitating discussion and teaching in a way that exercises authority. There is one last phrase in this text. It stumps me. Verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And I've read a variety of perspectives on this, and I'm still not sure that I understand it. But I will say this, though. No matter what woke folks try to tell us, 
Men cannot get pregnant. Men and women are different from creation. And childbearing is a very unique and extremely special role reserved only for women. And it was a woman who carried in her womb then the baby Jesus who became our Savior. And what higher calling could anyone have than that? There you have it. Paul covered quite a variety of instructions relating to corporate worship here. And I've gone longer than normal here to cover that. But may we remember this, above all, what we are here for today is to pray, is to individually and corporately talk to our Heavenly Father. And what an awesome opportunity that is, and how it draws us together, and it gives us together then a mission to spread the truth that there is a Savior for all sinners that will look to Him, and that is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Well, Lord God, we just thank you for your word and, and how it addresses all kinds of things that, that you want us to understand. And, and some of them are a bit of a mystery to us too. But Lord, we pray that you would help us, that we would uh, first of all remember what we're here for. And, and that when we come together, Lord, there are many reasons we might come um, to church on a Sunday morning. But may a priority be that we would, with our lips and with our hearts, each, communicate with you. And we pray that you would remind us of that week by week as we come together. And Lord, that you would teach us as we humble ourselves and as we listen to your word. And we pray that you would draw people through this congregation to come to know a personal relationship with you. And so Lord, we ask that you would bless and do your work even as we meet together around fellowship and Sunday school to follow here today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.